There's a habit that my grandmother and my mother cultivated in me, which is I'm not nearly as good about as I should be. In fact, thinking about this this morning reminded me I'm a little behind. The habit was writing thank you notes. Anybody ever have to sit down and write a thank you note? Did you ever get bitter about it around Christmas time? Human beings are amazing, aren't we? Well, they'll cover us up with gifts, and then mom says, now sit down and write a note to say thank you. Like, what? It's an outrage. So much bitterness and disappointment over saying thank you. Well, this week I received a thank you card, and there's a lot of things I regret about me. Uh, one of the things I regret about me is I do a very poor job of conveying back to you the gratitude from the missionaries, church plants, all the ministries that we support that are not on our campus, that are not directly ours. This little thank you note came in this week from a young missionary couple, Bree and Pete, and they are New Tribes missionaries, and they have a very unique niche kind of ministry. They serve the returning children of missionary families that are now coming back from overseas and entering American college. I've been there, I can tell you, it's a daunting thing, especially if you grew up in a culture that is very far removed culturally from the United States. If you can imagine, for instance, uh, growing up in a village with no electricity and no water, and then from one week to the next, enrolling as a freshman at Long Beach State, what would that be like? Okay? It's no fun. Uh, I've experienced it twice in middle school. And coming here to the United States for college, seventh grade was a miserable year. Freshman year in college was a little bit better, but there's just titanic adjustments. And Bree and Pete are missionaries to MKs. That's church lingo for missionary kid. And I just want you to, to hear their thank you note. Dear Crosspoint Church, Pete and I just wanted to thank you so much for your generous financial gift for our ministry to the care of missionary kids and their families. You have helped us do the work that God has given us a vision and a passion for. We believe it takes, a health, it takes healthy missionary families to continue the spread of the gospel to unreached people groups around the world. Unfortunately, the second biggest reason why missionaries leave the mission field is because their college-age MK is struggling here in the USA. Pete and I support these families by reaching out to college MKs and by being a resource to them so that they can transition well and know that they are not alone. We walk with them through the cultural, spiritual, emotional, and very practical struggles. Too often those struggles overtake MKs and we see them walk away from their faith in God. Our desire is to see every missionary kid walking with God in a healthy family, community, and church body, and receiving the service that they need. We thank you all again in Christ, Bree and Pete. Nice, right? Why don't I do that more often? Because I'm not that sharp. Ask anybody who knows me well, they'll tell you. We receive, week after week, notes like that, and today we're going to read what very well may be the first missionary thank you note. We started reading this thank you note back in January. It's the book of Philippians in your New Testament. Will you open it there, please, to chapter 1 first? Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes this letter from 
prison. That's where Jesus and his faithfulness to Jesus have taken him. Paul's preached the gospel everywhere he's been, never estimating that the risk is worth turning back from. And as it did so many times, this time it, wrote, it landed him in prison, so Paul wrote, them a letter, wrote a letter to this Philippian church to thank them. It's Paul's gratitude and the joy that Paul and the Philippian church share that tie this whole church together. The Philippian church was a remarkable group of Christians because they had this insight. The minute they met Jesus, they made the logical connection that seems to escape so many Christians. That if Jesus really is this good and He is the Savior of the world, then everyone should hear this. That's what I keep calling what the Bible calls the gospel. That's a simple word that simply means good news. And the Philippians were dedicated to doing whatever they could to help Paul get that message to places they couldn't go themselves. That's why he says in Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers, those are their pastors, and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the heart of the letter right in the first few verses. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's it. It's a thank you note. Even though Paul's in prison, he's bursting with gratitude because he is writing a church that he started himself by preaching Jesus at a riverbank. From that simple gathering of women, that, that group of brand new believers moved into somebody's house. Other people were added. The church grew and multiplied. They gained spiritual leadership. They elected deacons to serve the church body. And from the very beginning, according to verse 5, from the first day, he says, until now, in the very beginning of the gospel, as soon as they heard the good news about Jesus, they became his partners. They took a stake in it. They invested their lives, and you're going to see they invested their money. They sent Paul generous financial offerings time and again. When we come to the end of the letter, Paul will circle back again to his gratitude and thank them very specifically for their gift. Look with me in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, and today we'll conclude Paul's letter to the Philippians. He writes in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what's he saying? Content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, in other words, when I started preaching the good news of Jesus, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Let me stop there and ask 
you if you understand in plain language what that verse says. Remember my rule, we've been studying, sometimes I teach, sometimes I ask you questions, and the standard is if you can explain it to an eight-year-old boy, you've got it, okay? Not an eight-year-old girl, they're a lot sharper. You want to aim for the lower shelf of uh, an eight-year-old boy's understanding. If that sounds hateful, I've raised two eight-year-old boys. I was an eight-year-old boy, and my wife will tell you I occasionally act like an eight-year-old boy. So (laughs) that's my target when I try to see if I understand a verse. Verse 15, in your own words, what what is Paul saying back to the Philippian church? In verse 10, he says, I'm overjoyed, I'm very happy that you're helping me again because in verse 15, what's, what's the gist of it? They're the only ones that ever have. Do you see that? They were the only church when it came to giving and receiving, they were the only ones who helped Paul. That's astonishing to me. If you can think for a moment of what it must have been like to be an eyewitness to the life of Paul, because this was not an obscure personality, to know that this was the chief Pharisee educated by the most well-regarded religious teacher of his day, who was so revered in Judaism that he was actually given civic and religious authority to persecute Christians. And once Paul presided over the execution of Christians and gave his voice and his vote to their death. And now, Paul understands that he was dead wrong because Jesus is actually alive. And he made a complete 180 in the faith he once persecuted and the people he once hated. He now preaches, loves, and defends. And Paul was always pushing outward. He was not unacquainted with the risk. He knew exactly what it would cost him, but he was always pushing forward to take the name and the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus to people who had never heard it. And the people he took the gospel to turned, as Paul wrote the Thessalonian church, from idols to the living, true God. And their lives were transformed, their marriages, their children, everything changed about them. And they had a settled hope that when their tough life in first century, in first century Roman Empire finally ended, they would go to heaven. And being an eyewitness to the man who was the best preacher of all of that, no one wanted to help. Amazing. How could you miss that opportunity? One thing I absolutely love about being the pastor of this church is I know when we bring missionaries home and when we present gospel needs in our own community, I can present those to you with the absolute confidence that it will reach your heart and you'll want to help. It's one of your best traits as Christians. That you see a need and you want to help and you do all that you can with the time and money you have. As a church body, we're all in different places in our generosity, but as a church body, Crosspoint always answers the bell and I love it. And it puzzles me that the Apostle Paul, with all of his sacrifice to the point literally of being left for dead on one occasion and bearing in his body the scars of being a Christian, Everybody saw that up close, and only the Philippian church said, let's get in on this. Let's be his partners. That's what verse 15 says. Only they were his partners. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Even in Thessalonica, which is the very next stop Paul made after preaching to them. In other words, they started immediately. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. How did that, how did that offering make Paul feel and what did God think about it? I have received full payment and and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, that's a man from their church that they sent with the money, the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay. In my small group on Wednesday night, and we're going to restart small groups after Easter. If you're not in a group, I would urge you, beg you, encourage you, plead with you to get in one. In my small group, I explain the two simple questions that you have to ask to understand the Bible passage. It may take a little study and a little reflection, maybe even some teaching from someone else to help you get it, but the questions are two. The questions are these. If you're reading a particular passage of Scripture, the questions are these. Number one, what's he talking about? And number two, what's he saying about it? It's not too hard, is it? What's he talking about? In other words, what's what's his subject? And once you've zeroed in on the subject, what is this Bible author What is Paul, what is Peter, what is the Gospel of Matthew saying about that thing? So, let's look at this passage, okay? I've explained to you already, this is a thank you note in exchange for financial support that Paul received, but let's look at this passage. What's Paul talking about? What's his topic? Giving, right? They're giving. What's he saying about it? He's saying, that's awesome, okay, there's a 21st century, uh, yeah. He's saying thank you, and he is explaining to them what they're going to gain from their gift. See, the biggest thing that Christians believe about giving that isn't true is this. We mistakenly believe this untruth, this lie. We think that we give it and it's gone. We think we give it and it's lost. That's not true. I'm going to show you a couple different passages in Scripture, but I'm going to camp here to tell you that when you give, it's not gone. It's gone out of your hands. It's no longer under your control, but giving toward the gospel has no loss in it at all. It's actually filled with all kinds of gain. And that's one thing that Paul wants the Philippians to know. That when they give, all kinds of good things happen. All kinds of gains immediately become real in their life. The first one is this. When we give toward the gospel, we become partners in it. In other words, we have a stake in it. We share in its trouble. We share in that challenge. It becomes our cause. Look at verse 14. Paul says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. I want you to see Paul in that cell, if you possibly can. 
Sometimes we have an otherworldly view of the apostles and these first Christians. We think that they're superhuman. We think that they're indifferent to physical need. They become kind of these Superman-like cartoon characters whose Christianity is so far removed from ours that we just could never get there. We read their story with admiration, but knowing full well, just as we would if we were thinking about Spider-Man, that boy, that must be nice and that must be very exciting, but that just has absolutely nothing to do with me. Have you ever felt like that reading the Bible? You step back and go, wow, that's, that's impressive. I, I couldn't do that. Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. In other words, when Epaphroditus walked into that jail cell with the money, the clean clothing, the food perhaps that he had brought to sustain Paul while the Roman government starved him in prison, he was overwhelmed with joy. He may have cried for joy. He may have very likely said to Epaphroditus something like this, thank God you're here. I missed you. I need this. He's not far from these physical needs. He, is in, he has been and has learned to be in real trouble. And when we give to spread the gospel of Jesus, we become partners in it. We share that pressure. We bear that cost. That's the first thing that giving toward the gospel gives you. It gives you a stake in the greatest person ever, Jesus Christ, and the greatest message that anyone could ever tell anybody else, that Jesus saves, that death isn't the last word, that the resurrection is real, and Jesus gives eternal life. But you have to get invested. You have to give to become a partner in that. And what this passage tells me, and really it's the heart of the message It's probably the most practical thing I can tell you. It might make you uneasy as well. Because I've learned this as a pastor. There is no subject that any pastor could address on a Sunday morning with an open Bible other than giving that makes people more uncomfortable quicker. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you have already put your defenses up. I can tell. Don't do that. The Bible has a great deal to say about giving. It has a great deal to say about contentment here. And if you understand what Paul is saying here, it will, I can give you scriptural and personal testimony, it will absolutely change your life. It will give you peace and joy and confidence like you never knew existed. And what makes the difference is not the amount of money that you have. The difference is always contentment. Having enough money is never the issue. Contentment always is. Look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Understand what Paul's saying. Verse 10, I was so happy in the Lord to get your offering. But I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is an amazing testimony. 
What that means is that Paul is, what Paul is telling you in these verses, beginning in verse 11, and he says it again in verse 12, I learned to be content in whatever financial circumstance I found myself in. In other words, there was a time when Paul felt the pressure of following Jesus begin to mount in his life. Because Paul, before Jesus, was well-respected. I don't know if he was wealthy, but he was certainly comfortable. He had the admiration of an entire society, and the religious structure that that was at the center of Jewish life held him up as its chief teacher. And then one day, this is the way his enemies told it, Paul lost his mind and started telling a crazy story that the Jesus who was such an imposter, and Paul told us that, and he showed us that with an open Bible, was actually alive. And now Paul was going to walk away from everything he'd ever known to tell everybody else about Jesus. There was a time in Paul's life when he felt his family relationships first get a little chilly and then be shattered beyond repair. Paul had a trade, too. He was a tent maker. And Paul saw one by one as his customers started falling off and as his business dried up. And the first time in his adult life, Paul felt hunger for the first time ever. And there was only one reason. That reason was Jesus. Paul would not let go of him and would not stop talking about him. And it began to cost Paul everything to the point that he says here, I know how to be hungry. I know what it's like to face hunger and be satisfied in the middle of that. What is Paul telling you here? He is talking about contentment. You see, you can't ever be a generous giver if you're not content with your station right now. Contentment stands in the way of generosity. If you're not satisfied, if you don't think God's giving you a fair break, if you don't think that you have enough for yourself, you'll never turn loose of more. And Paul says on two different occasions that he has learned this. In other words, it was a process. There was a time when he felt the sting of it, and it was, he didn't think it was right. Verse 11, I am not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have, keyword learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and then comes the most misquoted, misapplied verse in the entire New Testament. Where do you normally hear Philippians 4.13? I normally hear it after sports events where they interview the 285-pound defensive tackle who just rearranged someone's spine. How do you feel? Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's why that man can't walk anymore. <laughs> you know, I don't begrudge that. Good for you for giving credit, because you're right, that talent, that strength came from God. But don't cheat this verse of what it's actually saying. Do you understand the context? Have I made that clear? Paul is saying, I have learned whether I'm starving and cold or I'm in a generously provided home with more than enough food. I have learned to be content right there. The reason a lot of Christians who have been given much never learn to be generous givers 
pay all their bills, satisfy their wants, make sure that they're enough, and from what is left they give toward the gospel is one simple reason. They're not content. They always need just a little bit more. And pay raises and scholarships and unexpected blessings make no difference. That gets absorbed into the lifestyle and you never move toward generosity because there is no contentment. I want you to understand who this Philippian church was. For that, we have to look at a different letter. See, there was another church that was very unlike the Philippians. They were the church at Corinth. And the Philippian church, I learned from what Paul wrote, the Corinthians was a poor church, actually. The Corinthian church apparently had more than enough of just about everything, but their heart wasn't with God. They were misusing the grace of Jesus, and they were using the announcement that Jesus could forgive all their sins to live wild, wicked lives, so much so that Paul had to write them two long letters begging them to get it together and walk out their Christian faith. In the first letter, Paul wrote them at the very end reminding them that they, all the churches in the Roman Empire where Paul had spread the gospel were beginning to receive an offering that they were going to send back to Jerusalem because the gospel persecution had engulfed Jerusalem and Christians were going hungry back where the gospel had first been preached. So in 1 Corinthians 16, at the end of the letter, he says, listen, here's how you're going to receive that money. That's why churches take an offering on Sunday morning. He said, on the first day of the week, in keeping with your income, let every one of you set something aside and give it so that there's no collections when I come. In other words, give it consistently. As God blesses you and provides for you, take a generous portion from that, set it aside, and give it when you come together for worship. Simple, practical. When I read the second letter, I learn something about the Corinthian church. They had talked a good game about being generous and sending relief to other Christians. They hadn't done anything about it. About a year has gone by, in fact, and they haven't given a penny. They haven't sent anything. So Paul wrote them about the Philippian church and told them this. 2 Corinthians 8, look up here. Paul here is going to mention the province of Macedonia, which is where the city of Philippi was, along with two other cities, two other churches that Paul was familiar with. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, in an internet age, that's a lot of words. Do you understand what Paul's saying? He tells you two things about the church at Philippi. They are very joyful. They have an abundance of joy, but that's not all they have. What else do they have? Extreme poverty. poverty. They are very poor. Well, that's not a very good combination, is it? I like the first part. I'm not in love with the second. They're not just poor, they're extremely poor. And listen, if you're extremely poor in the first century, that means that it's hard to keep food on the table. Now, what was the result of that mixture when joy and extreme poverty were combined? Paul says they overflowed in what? In generosity. 
Their joy overcame their poverty, and they became very generous givers. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Again, this is an amazing statement. Paul says they gave in keeping with what they had, and they did more than that. They gave beyond their means. How did they give it? Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's radical scripture. You ever begged to give? I've given joyfully. I don't know if I've ever begged for the opportunity. You ever chase the usher down and say, please take my money? What's that website again? Listen, I need to, I'm going to talk to my bank tomorrow. We're going to move things around. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, if they had to beg Paul, who knew what a great God Jesus says, what a great Savior. If they had to beg Paul for the opportunity to give the way they wanted to, all I can deduce from that is it must have looked very unreasonable. Paul must have said something like this, are, are you sure? You, you really want to give that much? He'd been in their homes He'd seen their table. He'd seen their clothing. He knew they didn't have it to give, and yet they did. Why? Here's the bottom line is the key to it. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. What that means is, is a key point in your relationship with Jesus. If you understand that you and everything you have in your hands belongs to God, you'll have no trouble at all letting loose of any part of it. Tozier explained it like this, A.W. Tozier, as long as we think we own anything, that thing owns us. As soon as, as soon as we know that we own nothing, God owns us. That's the difference. Paul could rejoice in prison because he was content, and the Philippians could be generous givers to prison because they were content. He says in two verses later, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7, he lays it on the line and makes it very practical for the Corinthian church and for anyone who is a Christian who is struggling with this issue of generosity. Read it with me, 2 Corinthians 8, 7. The Bible says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, you're a great church. You have great faith, you're wonderful at talking, you excel in speech, you have a great deal of knowledge, you're very earnest, and in our love for you, in other words, we really do love you. We love you with all of our hearts. Now, make sure that you get really, really good at this grace of giving as well. Let me make it very simple, as simple as I can. You can't be a mature Christian without being a generous giver. It's as simple as that. Jesus was generous to the point of laying down His own life. Someone who is truly mature and truly Christ-like will strive to be generous in keeping with their income, whatever that looks like, 
every mature Christian will be a generous giver. You can be a generous giver without being mature, but you can't be mature if you're not content, if you're not filled with joy, and that joy and contentment express themselves in being generous toward the spread of the gospel. The first thing you gain when you grow into this grace of giving, you become a partner in spreading the good news. The second thing that Paul's going to explain to them, the second thing you gain when you become a generous giver is you gain eternal rewards. God in His goodness commands His children to be generous givers, and then, not content with receiving our obedience, actually rewards it. And he does this by taking our very simply earthly treasures and converting them into heavenly treasure that he will one day give back to us. That's what Paul was talking about in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I'm not interested in your money. I'm overjoyed to be fed and clothed again, but that's not my main motivation. What I'm after when I partner with you is I want fruit that God will put on your account. It's the exact same thing Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at this, Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. If I'm explaining that to my eight-year-old boy, I would explain it like this. Don't pile it all up here. Don't try to keep all of your treasures here on earth. Why? Because they're at risk. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. As long as you're piling it up here on earth, it is chronically at risk. It can be taken from you. At the risk of reviving an old painful memory, how many of you got hurt in the crash in 2008? It can be taken from you. You went from being reasonably happy to being appalled from one month to the next when you got that next statement. And maybe you picked up the phone and said to someone, what is the meaning of all this? And they said, I don't know, Mark took a downturn. Yeah, big time. What Jesus is saying is, piling it all up here is foolish. It can be taken from you. It can be destroyed. It's always at risk. What are you to do instead? Read with me from the word, from the comma. The next word is but. Read from there. Jesus said, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is the best communicator ever to walk this earth. It's simple. It's just not very well believed. Jesus said, if you pile it all up here, it's always at risk. You should do something better. You should do something wiser. You should lay it up for yourself. This is a reward for you. You're going to give it to God, but God in His generosity somehow is going to put it to your credit. That's what Paul said to the Philippians. Jesus is saying it a different way. When you're giving, it's not gone. God stores it up for you somehow, some way in heaven, and you can enjoy it later. As Randy Alcorn says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. 
And if you really understand that and believe that, it radically changes your attitude toward giving. And giving becomes not a drudgery where if you're a tither, you grudgingly move the decimal point backward. Say, okay, I made 150 bucks, tithe would be, oh man, 15, I'm going to miss that. No. Whatever your proportion of giving is in keeping with your income, if you really understand and believe this, you become excited about giving. Because you understand when you give it, according to Jesus and the Apostle Paul, it's not gone. It's kept for you. It moves on to your account. Randy Alcorn gives this simple example. He says, imagine that you live in the American Civil War, and you're a northerner who finds himself living in the South. So for years, all you've had is Confederate money. But you can tell this war is nearly over. And the Confederacy will soon fall, and the minute it does, all of your Confederate money is going to be worthless. He said, all you would want to do is keep as little as you could to pay your bills while you still live there, and you would want to convert as much of that Confederate money into Northern money so that it would last after the war was over. That's what life on this earth is like. Do you think for a moment these impoverished Philippian believers, when they got to heaven and they saw the extent of their reward and they saw what their meager little gifts to one man in prison accomplished for the sake of the gospel, do you think for a moment they regretted it? Do you think those deacons, those pastors, those ordinary church members like Epaphroditus saw the reward that the Father had prepared for them and said, oh, what a terrible mistake. I wish I would have held on to my stuff. We could have had a nicer place, Marge. No. Those things won't matter. They won't matter at the moment of death, and they won't matter one instant after you pass into eternity. What Paul's telling you is, when you give, it's all gain. You become an actual partner, not a spectator, not a fan, not someone who applauds the effort of the gospel going out, but someone who has a stake in it, who shares in its trouble, who bears its expense, who lives in that drama and lives in that conflict. And your father is so good that he will give you not only the ability to partner for the spread of the gospel, he'll actually give you a reward that he will give you when you're in heaven with him. And the third thing and the best thing that Paul told them to reassure them because they were giving out of poverty is found In verse 19, he said, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When you become a generous giver, something else happens. You can live with the confidence that God will supply your own needs. Jesus said it over and over again Your heavenly Father knows what you need, He knows you get hungry, He knows your car breaks down. He knows your clothes wear out. He knows your kids have to go to school. He knows you need to pay the rent. He knows about the mortgage. He knows about the taxes. He knows all about that. When you enter into partnership with Him, something extraordinary happens. When you learn to be contented enough to give, even if you find yourself in genuine need of your own, your heavenly Father then promises to supply everything you need. Not everything you want. Listen, if I had everything I've ever wanted, Huntington Beach could not contain it. I've wanted a great deal. 
I've had many things I've wanted. Not all, but many. I've had every single thing provided that I actually needed. I could give you story after story of people that I've met on the mission field and in the United States in this very church at the very edge of poverty who have understood the assurance that they have that they can do what God says and He will provide, who can tell you that this is not simply a promise written on a page. This is their daily reality. And once you understand it, and you see it not as Christian drudgery, or something that some clever pastor has cooked up to squeeze your already too tight budget, once you understand that this is one of the elements that helps the good news and the great name of Jesus spread out, you'll live with confidence and peace like I cannot possibly begin to explain to you. Because when you give, there's nothing lost. It's not that you give it and it's gone. When you're giving to the gospel, there are no losses. There are only gains. Your heavenly Father has promised to provide for you. Let me ask you this. If Bill Gates sent you 20 bucks in the mail, would you be impressed? You'd be grateful because he didn't know it to you, right? I mean, come on, what's wrong with you? He sent you a complete stranger 20 bucks. That's nice, right? Would you be impressed? No. Why wouldn't you be impressed? Because he has billions. Understand what Paul's saying here. Your heavenly Father will supply your needs according to what? According to His riches. There is nothing ever that you could need where your heavenly Father will look down at your life and say, sorry, I just got I just got paid, but there were also some big bills, and we don't have it right now. Your heavenly Father is not like your earthly father, who has to watch it and be careful. He has all the riches imaginable, and He has promised that He will provide for your needs. What happens when you become a generous giver? You shoulder the responsibility of making sure that other people hear about Jesus. You enter into the greatest cause there is. You become a partner in spreading the gospel. You also get to experience someday that your father will not be outgiven and he is not stingy, that he will take your earthly gifts, be they great or small, and turn them into heavenly reward for you. And all the way on your way to heaven, you're going to learn something greater, that he's going to supply everything you need because when you give to the gospel, nothing is lost. Everything is gained. Let's pray together. Lord, grow us into contentment and into generosity. There are too many situations here, Lord, for me to begin to understand. But you know where every single person who heard this passage of Scripture is in their relationship with you and in their ability to trust you. Some, Lord, know better than I that everything your Word says is true and they've lived it day after day. Your daily provision has been a real, miraculous thing in their life. And they know how true it is. They could explain it better than I can. Others have grown accustomed to hanging on to everything they get. Help us all move forward. Help us all excel in this grace. So that the gospel would be preached. And Jesus would be known and loved. 
as we receive this offering, Lord, at the end of our service, help us now to give with great joy. And whether we are wealthy or poor, help us to give with an eye on eternity. In Jesus' name.